I want to invite you to turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, continuing on in our study of this, this chapter that we are entitling Rights Obtained, Defended, and Surrendered. And this, of course, is really the uh, middle chapter, if you will, of Paul's larger discussion of this issue of rights, or you might even call them liberties, that we have as believers, how those are to be understood, the freedoms with which we can or should or possibly should not exercise liberties and freedoms and rights that we have as believers. And so we've been walking through this, really going all the way back to the beginning of this study in chapter 8, where we've been trying to understand what not only has been what not only what was going on in Corinth, but really how all this can be applied to us in our time and in our church and in our context here. And as I've continued to study this myself and really be convicted by the truth that's flowing out of this chapter and chapter nine and really these two chapters, chapters eight and nine, as they are looked at collectively. I am more and more convinced with each passing day and each passing reflection on a particular verse or a particular point of application, that, that our understanding of principles that flow out of this teaching by the Apostle Paul on Christian liberties, Christian freedom, and the exercise, or more importantly, the surrender of those rights and liberties and freedoms for higher purpose, the, the more that we can really get our hearts and our minds around these principles, and then more importantly, apply them steadily and consistently to our lives, particularly within the context of the fellowship of the local body of believers, that this, this understanding and this consistent application of these principles is one of the most comprehensive marks of mature people, of a truly mature gathering of God's people in the local church. And I think that oftentimes one of the challenges that we face, and I think it's, it's only amplified in our day and time, that we, we place oftentimes a premium on the acquisition of knowledge, the, the, the obtaining of information that can give us sort of a leg up on life, I mean, you could sort of simplify this and put it into more of a a pop culture vernacular. You know, we we have life hacks that we're after. You know, there's YouTube videos and TikTok videos that have all these hacks for life to make you better at doing something. I actually came across one this weekend. I'm I'm literally, it it kind of, in some ways, may have revolutionized my life. I mean, it, it was this video of how you can actually dry your sneakers in the dryer. So rather than throwing your sneakers in the dryer and letting it tumble and make all kinds of noise and beat your dryer to death, this video showed some person pulling the strings out with the shoes inside the door of the dryer and closing the door so that the shoes are just hanging, suspended in the dryer, the dryer spinning around them and putting heat all... Did you all... Who knew that already? One person. And you didn't tell any of us that. But no, this whole idea, this whole principle of, 
of you know, knowing more so that we can live life better, so that we can be better at stuff. You know, that's kind of the, the air that we breathe today. And it really is, uh, it's really amplified, as I said, just by access to silly videos with shoes hanging in a dryer that we have access to all the time, that actually get thrust into our field of vision sometimes without even being asked to see it. But this, this, is, this is about something more profound and in many ways more simple than the acquisition of knowledge or of new information or of broader exposure and understanding of more theological or doctrinal content. This is about the simple application of some very basic principles of life amongst fellow believers. Very simple. And, the, and, the, and the, the matters that are in view here are not complicated. They're, they're not really characterized by some kind of nuance or depth that we have to really struggle to get our minds around so that we then know how to apply this or we then know how to make use of this truth in our lives. It's really very straightforward. And I think it's hopefully captured, at least to some degree, with clarity in the title of our study, Rights Obtained, Defended, and Surrendered. And that's been the flow of the discussion that the Apostle Paul has had us in, in that there are rights that we do have as believers. There are freedoms that we do have as believers. But the the greatest demonstration of freedom in Christ is the freedom to gladly and willingly surrender those rights. Freedoms to lay aside those freedoms and those rights, if the laying aside of those rights advances the gospel, advances the work of the kingdom of God, and or helps to advance another fellow believer in their journey toward maturity and greater faithfulness in Christ. And so it just really puts in front of us in a particular frame of application and actual experience in the first century uh, in Corinth with this whole matter of food being sacrificed to idols and the partaking of that as being a freedom for some and an offense to others in the church. It takes this whole, this whole sort of first century context and it just explodes this simple principle that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's in dying that I live. It's in giving that I receive. It's it's the model of Christ's life. I did not come to be served, but to serve. It's these fundamental, essential principles and truths of what it means to just be a Christian that the Apostle Paul is sort of illustrating and, and, and elucidating and teaching on with the particular application or the particular context of this matter of offending the conscience by eating food sacrificed to idols. And so that's why I say that this is such an important study for us so that we can get more consistent, become more consistent at just applying the principles that are here so that we don't fall prey to many of the things that many churches and many individual believers fall prey to that ultimately lead to contention and conflict and disunity, particularly in the body of Christ. And as we've seen, as we've studied 1 Corinthians, that was sort of premium. That was what was you know, on full orb display in Corinth are these 
factions and these dissensions over a range of matters, and, and, it, and it was being promulgated and, and advanced and even expanded in the life of the church because many people in the life of the church thought they knew things, thought they had, they had obtained a certain body of knowledge, thought that they had ascended to a certain height or level of Christian maturity, of even giftedness. And yet they were failing to apply some of the most basic principles of Christian virtue, fundamentally just sacrifice for another brother. Just just laying something down for the benefit of another. Holding on to these rights and and claiming these rights. And and after all, these rights are indeed true rights. I'm I'm not making it up. It is true that I have the freedom to eat this food sacrificed to idols, they would say in this particular context. And indeed, Paul would affirm that. But what we've been seeing particularly in chapter 9, as the Apostle Paul has turned the focus to himself and his rights that he gladly and willingly laid down, we see that the Apostle Paul is calling the Corinthians and thereby calling us to have a, a grander vision of rights and freedom and liberty, to have a higher purpose that motivates the decisions we make about the exercise or the resistance to exercise these freedoms and liberties. Now, we've been focusing our attention on the first 14 verses of this chapter. where We really see the Apostle Paul point out these rights that he has obtained or that are his, and then he defends these rights. It's rights obtained and defended in the first 14 verses that we've been looking at. And so let's read verses 1 to 14, to kind of reset this in our minds, and then we'll pick up in a little bit, we'll, we'll step into verses 15 to 27, begin that section in just a few minutes. But looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord, and are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should, not pl- should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that these that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? 
In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, as we've been saying, this is an intensely focused section on rights. The Apostle Paul continues to employ this term for rights, namely his right, and in particular, his right to be remunerated. I've been practicing that word. If you were here last week, I kept getting it wrong. His right to be remunerated for his ministry of the gospel, for his preaching. This whole section really is, is this defense of the right of the minister of the gospel to be compensated for his work of ministry amongst those in the local church. That's kind of the the overarching principle that's in view here. This is the, the nature of his defense. This is the right that he is claiming that he has in sort of juxtaposition to the rights that the Corinthians were claiming to be able to have the freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols, regardless of its impact on their public testimony or on the conscience of a weaker brother or sister who might be offended by such an exercise, offended by such an act. So he's basically turning the corner here and saying, you say you have rights, so let me talk about my rights. And and the nature of this description is significant because he begins with this right of basic sustenance. He, he begins to characterize the right to food and drink. So you're talking about your freedom to eat a certain kind of food, but let me talk to you about a right that I've surrendered, and it, it, it goes further back in the, in the chain of needs to actual sustenance. Not just a preference for the kinds of sustenances you're going to take in, but sustenance itself. He gets, he gets sort of beyond, behind or on the other side of their claim of rights and says, I've even denied that right from you. So, so this is a, a very passionate statement, a very compelling way that he is, he's making this case for this right to be compensated for ministry and to be cared for as a minister of the gospel by those to whom he is ministering. We've looked pretty extensively at the nature of these right, this right that he's articulating, this overarching right of the gospel minister to be supported by those he serves. And we, we looked at some length to, at some of the, the, the reasons or the rationale or the bases for this right. What, what is this right to compensation actually based upon? And of course, we started by noting that he says that it's on the basis of validated apostolic authority that I have this right. You see that in the first six verses. You note, first of all, that, that he was called and commissioned by the resurrected Christ. Verse 1, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? You go back to chapter 1, verse 1. He starts by saying, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. So in other words, this right of his to be compensated begins with the fact that he is a legitimate commissioned minister of the gospel, but not just someone who has been ordained by someone else, but who has actually been commissioned by Christ, the resurrected Christ. He is in the technical sense an apostle. Those that are commissioned by Christ himself in this work of taking the gospel to the nations. In fact, we alluded to this last week, but I just want to, I want to, I decided I wanted to go back to this account because I think it's important for us to see the nature of this testimony of, of 
Paul's apostolic call. You see this in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. But, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, to, to the Christian life, to the Christian church, anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at that house, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then Ananias goes and then we see him healing basically the blindness of Paul. This is an incredible account in many, many ways, of course, not the least of which is the actual visual appearance of the resurrected Christ to the Apostle Paul. But note the nature of this kind of call, this kind of commissioning to apostleship. This is a call that did not come to someone who was sort of on the path toward Christianity. This is, this is a, a, a call of someone who was completely resistant to everything pertaining to the message of the gospel. And not only that, the, the, the repeated affirmation of the call came from someone else. So in other words, the strength or the power or the significance of this commissioning is demonstrated by the fact that this this had to come from Christ himself because the Apostle Paul was on a horse going in a complete opposite direction on a completely different mission. And even further, this is the testimony of Luke, the writer of Acts, but even in the description, even in Luke's description of the accounts that took place, it wasn't that Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul and he said, cool, I'll do that. He had no idea what was actually happening to him. He didn't even know who was appearing to him at first. And it had to be reaffirmed at the commissioning of Christ to tell Ananias to go and lay hands on him because he is a chosen instrument of mine, he says. The the nature of this apostolic call is of paramount importance in understanding Paul's, the significance of Paul's arguments about his rights. It, it, it can't be overstated. 
When he says that he has these rights, and he begins with the fact that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is what he's talking about. Against every conceivable providence and every conceivable reality at the time, Christ stepped in and called me out in dramatic fashion and then reaffirmed that call to another man who came and had to commission me through, through Christ's command to him on a second layer of this commissioning. The nature of this call to apostleship couldn't be more significant of a testimony of the, of the significance of Paul's rights to this kind of compensation, to this kind of support or help from those to whom he ministered. And he goes on to talk about how his work was authenticated. The work of God amongst the Corinthians was authenticated by the very fact that they were his workmanship. They were believers now. So this basis of apostolic authority, of authenticated apostolic authority, is, is the Apostle Paul saying this, he starts with something that's inarguable. That I, I mentioned last week, it's almost like he's in some ways, for not, not for uh, purposes to manipulate or to, to move an agenda on, 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 uh, to get his way with the Corinthians, but for the purpose of establishing the significant nature of his apostolic authority, he goes right to this particular description, this particular reference point of his call and his authenticated work among them. You, you, you should not be even questioning this, he says, when it comes to my rights. And then we talked about how the basis of common custom was another reason, another defense that he laid down before them. He, verses 4 to 7, you start there, actually in verse 5, he talks about the accepted support for other apostles and their families. The expected compensation for jobs performed in society there in verse 7 with the reference to a soldier and a farmer and a shepherd. And then he talks about the basis of the law and Old Testament revelation in verses 8 to 13. Do I not say these things on human authority? Excuse me, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Paul here is demonstrating a principle that he articulates explicitly in the next chapter with reference to the Old Testament. These things, he says in chapter 10, verse 11, happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. I'm pulling out Old Testament references to say this is not some new thing here. This is not some new principle that I'm just making up out of thin air. This goes back into Old Testament time. It goes back into Old Testament law, Old Testament instruction. And, and it applies to you today. And the reason why we have this is so that it's, it can be an example to us, he would say. Now some, this is what I found to be kind of interesting, some would argue that the Apostle Paul, by, by saying that, that after he says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, is it for oxen that God is concerned? He, he's, he's basically making a case for God's lack of concern for animals. Interesting little point to make if you're writing a commentary. I don't understand why you would draw that point out. But obviously, that's not the case here. He's illustrating 
a common rhetorical principle of the lesser to the greater. By referencing this ox when it treads out the grain, it's similar to what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. When he's teaching about not being anxious, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So the note here, or the, 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 the reference to this Old Testament principle, is a reference to an oxen that is treading out the grain. He employs several different analogies here, and the first one is this unmuzzled ox who has the freedom to eat as he works. And then he goes on to speak of the worker and a plowman, the thresher. They should anticipate the produce of their work. The whole idea here is that he's drawing from in this Old Testament reference, in these analogies that he's employing, is that this is, this is common practice even from the standpoint of the Old Testament law. That, that an ox that works should not be muzzled and not be able to sustain himself as he's working. He should receive the produce of the work in the same way a plowman or a thresher should anticipate that same kind of produce, that same kind of product, that same kind of benefit or payment, if you will, for the work that's being done. And then he goes on to talk about the temple priests in verse 13. This is common Old Testament understanding as well. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? This is described in significant detail, for example, in Numbers chapter 18, how the priests were cared for and were able to take the produce of the offerings that were being given. This is just normal understanding of Old Testament practice. And even the Corinthians would have understood this from the standpoint of the practice in pagan temples. This would have been similar uh, practice for those who tended to the sacrifices that would be taking place in pagan temples, that those tenders or those priests, those pagan priests, would be able to partake of the sacrificial food. So it's on the basis of Old Testament law. It's on the basis of, of uh, apostolic authority. It's also on the basis of Jesus' instruction in verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He's just layering argument after argument on this. Starting from the call of, and commissioning of Christ himself, the resurrected Christ, in the way that we describe from Acts chapter 9, working his way back to Old Testament teaching and instruction, giving even a reference point from the Old Testament that the pagans would understand in the terms of the sacrificial system there and pagan offerings and the priests being able to partake in those offerings. And then he comes down to the actual instruction of Christ himself. This is, this is him mounting this case layer upon layer, reason upon reason, for this principle of a right to have compensation come to those who minister the gospel as a complete devotion of life. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, sends out the twelve. to He, he empowers them to heal and to cast out demons. And he sends them out to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. In chapter 10, verses 5 to 10, Jesus says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Sends them only to the Jews at this point. And enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Here he gets into the compensation piece. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. It's kind of an odd way to kind of understand or to kind of hear this, um, this stated. He's basically telling them, you don't need to take money with you. Your, your compensation will come from those to whom you're ministering. That's why he concludes this by saying, acquire no silver or gold, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals, for the laborer deserves his food. In other words, your care, your livelihood in this mission I'm sending you out on should come from those who receive you and who are benefactors of your ministry. And then in Luke chapter 10, verses 4 to 7, where he sends out the 72 witnesses, it's the same kind of instruction. It's the same kind of practice, the same kind of principle. He even uses this same statement again, for the laborer deserves his wages, in chapter 10, verse 7 of Luke. So he sends out, Jesus sends out witnesses. He sends out his disciples, and he sends out 72 witnesses, and he tells them, You're not to take savings with you. You're to go and minister and you're to receive compensation and support and sustenance from those who receive you and receive your message and and to whom you bring this message and they receive blessing from it. So the Apostle Paul layers argument after argument onto the Corinthians so that they have no quarter to escape the significance of Paul's right. This right that he says, I have obtained justly, it is mine. I have defended it with airtight argumentation. He's, he's putting this in front of them as a, as a significant wall for them. Something that insurmountable that they could not climb over. Now, I want us to kind of review just for a moment before we move into this next section What are some of the general characteristics of this right to compensation that we should understand from the text? And as I said last time, uh, you know, I'm trying to kind of, I'm trying to kind of uh, walk through this in a way that doesn't sound like I'm making some kind of case for, you know, some kind of pay raise from the church or something. I, 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 like I said, we we are uh, very well taken care of here. Um, very thankful for the way that the Lord has provided for this church and the generosity of this congregation. But I think that there's some misunderstood practices that are common in many churches that I would never want us to, to sort of slip into because we haven't really paid attention to some of the principles and made good observations that flow out of this particular text. I want us to look for just a moment at some of the general characteristics that we should understand about this this matter of compensating those who are involved in gospel ministry as as a full-time practice of, of work. So first thing I would point our attention to is that this is a matter of just pure practical necessity. That's why you have in verse 4 this reference to eating and drinking. It's not just a reference to the nature of sustenance, but this is just a practical necessity. We live in a, a world where stuff's not free. And if I want to eat and I want to drink, by and large, I need to have some means to acquire that sustenance. It's a very practical matter. The reason why I'm starting here is that I think that there, are, there is a tendency among some believers 
and certainly among some churches, that they can think in very clear and decidedly practical terms about compensation matters as it relates to secular employment. It's a practical matter. Like, here's my budget. I kind of need to make this much if I'm going to survive. You're talking to your potential employer. You're interviewing for a job. It's like very practical. Like, how much is, what's the hourly rate? What's my salary going to be? How does that line up with my budget? Very practical. But oftentimes in church circles, this whole matter gets over-spiritualized. As though it's some esoteric kind of thing. And I want to start with the practical nature that the Apostle Paul starts with. This is very practical. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Like, can we just like, have enough to at least get by? I mean, is that not reasonable? But it's not just a matter of practical necessity. It is a matter of pragmatic assessment. And that might sound a little bit like a, a redundant way of saying things, but let me try to, let me try to kind of uh, thread the needle here on, a, on the distinction. It's a matter of practical necessity, what is the basic needs of a person, but it's also a matter of pragmatic assessment. Now, what are, where am I getting this from? Well, if you look at verse 6 and 7 again, he says, Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Now, this... We'll start, at the, start in the second half of this section with the reference to the soldier, the farmer, and the shepherd. When I say it's a matter of pragmatic assessment, you might say it's a matter of just normal, local labor market forces. What's the nature of the job being done? What's the demand of the work being asked to engage in? What are the qualifications of a person who we want to do this kind of work? In other words, there's a pragmatic assessment that is needed here. Kind of education is required, these kinds of things. So you have these references to familiar job titles, if you will, of a soldier, a farmer, and a shepherd to put this into the realm of very pragmatic considerations of assessment. But there's more here than just that. You could also say that in this, in this understanding all of this as a pragmatic assessment, you could say that the principle of you generally get what you pay for could apply. You generally get what you pay for. These days, I feel like we're getting a lot less than what we pay for, just as a general matter. But, you know, the, the, the typical, you know, sort of axiom, you, you generally get what you pay for. He, he says there, is it... Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? The implication there is that if I am going to be engaged in other activities in order to live my life and sustain my, my basic needs and to pay for the things I have to pay for to just occupy space in Corinth right now, then there's going to be a cost for that. There's a pragmatic cost for that divided attention, that, that divided investment of time and energy and focus. In other words, you can't look at it and say, well, you know, they can, they can work over here and, you know, be a tent maker and then, and then minister the gospel and all will be well. Well, no, that's not pragmatically looking at the situation at all. It's not to even render a, a definitive judgment on whether someone should or should not be a tent maker and also a pastor of a church, for example. 
The bottom line is, is as we're looking at this, we need to have a very pragmatic view of that kind of assessment. That if Paul and Barnabas are going to have to work to support themselves, then that work is definitely going to detract from or take away from their time and energy and focus in the ministry work, in the gospel. It's just a pragmatic, it's just a, a natural consequence of that. It's interesting, though, that this, this sort of, you might say, this cost for cutting corners, uh, the Apostle Paul sort of expands upon that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 to 9. He says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Listen to this, verse 8. I robbed other churches by accepting support for them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Now, I, I draw this in, not to do a, a significant deep dive on the passage. It just, it just illustrates the point that this is a very pragmatic assessment that has to be in view here. That he was in need, and for reasons that we'll talk about in just a minute, he did not want to bring this burden, he calls it, to the Corinthians But the meeting of this need was still in play. There was still need there. And in fact, the way he describes a part of the meeting of that need is not just that he worked with his hands as a tent maker, but he actually says that the Macedonian churches, their support aided me in this. And he characterizes it by robbing other churches to make this happen. Bottom line principle, it's going to come from, it's got to come from somewhere. It's not going to just materialize out of thin air. This is what I love about this particular section. The Apostle Paul is not sort of, you know, over-spiritualizing the matter here. He had needs, they had needs in their ministry in Corinth, and praise the Lord, there was generosity that came to them from other churches to help meet that need. It's a pragmatic issue. So to the extent that the minister of the gospel is not adequately cared for by those to whom he ministers, there's going to be a cost. You're going to get what you pay for is the principle. Think of it very pragmatically. Don't over-spiritualize the matter. It does come down to that in many respects. In fact, when you look at the backstory of Paul's ministry in Corinth from Acts chapter 18... Notice how this kind of plays out in real time. This reference in 2 Corinthians to the the gift that came from those that were from Macedonia. Here's the backstory in Acts chapter 18. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, not every day, but every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. But then in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, and what did they bring with them from Macedonia but a gift, a contribution from the churches in Macedonia. When they arrived, Paul was occupied with the word. 
So he goes from, from reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews, but also working with his hands in the trade of tent making with Aquila and Priscilla, to being supplied from those from Macedonia. And this word occupied with the word, it's, it's, a, it's a term that describes an all-encompassing devotion. It's a, it's a fully engaged kind of devotion. So the nature of this is, is one in which the Apostle Paul, because of the blessing and, and, and generosity of other churches, in a very pragmatic kind of exchange, he's able to devote himself full on to the ministry of the word in Corinth, and for reasons that we'll get into in just a moment, to not require compensation for his preaching, or as he would say, to preach free of charge. It's an interesting understanding here, to not over-spiritualize the matter. It's also a matter of ample generosity. We talked about this a little bit last time, but you see verse 5, the idea of being able to take along a believing wife to be able to have enough support to, to uh, support a family, a wife and a family, is in view here. And this sort of this reference in verse 12, that if others are, are taken care of or paid in these ways, do we not even more, are we not even more entitled to some kind of compensation for our work in the gospel? Those that have, that, that ply other ideologies that are teaching you know, empty and vain philosophies in your philosophical schools, you, you have no problem compensating them. Do we not require, or should we not deserve even more than that? Because we bring the gospel to you? That's the our argument there. And then obviously with the reference in verse 13 to the provision for the priests that are engaged in the sacrificial system in, in, in uh, Israel... If you look at, at the reference that, that, that refers to in Numbers 18, you'll see that it's a very generous provision for the priests. So in other words, this is not the kind of thing where we as believers or churches collectively should somehow place a spiritual lens in front of us that is not even a, a good spiritual lens, not even a thoroughly biblical spiritual lens that says that somehow we need to look at this you know, as just a spiritual matter, and we need to not be oriented toward generosity, but be oriented toward what can we, you know, what, what can we get for the lowest amount. We need to keep this, this man of God humble, lest he, you know, begin to minister as a result of desire for sordid gain, as Peter talks about in First Peter. It's our job. It's our job as the church to make sure that we protect this man of God from you know, desiring sordid gains. So we're going to you know, kind of pay him just a little bit above the poverty line. That's, that's what we'll do. No, the orientation of the passage is toward generosity, toward ample supply. That's the idea. You see this kind of this idea. Paul speaks of it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then he references the same thing that he references here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So again, just some, some things to, to keep in mind as we think about this particular matter, both now and on into the future. As if our church grows, if we add new staff people, 
we need to have some very basic principles in mind about this. These are practical matters. They require just a pragmatic assessment of things. And we need to be oriented toward generosity because that's what this text would compel us to. Now, it's at this point that we need to turn our attention to verse 15. And this is the clear transition from Paul's description and defense of these rights that he's obtained, or really this overarching right of compensation. He turns the corner now to this declaration, and even he refers to it as a boast, that these rights that are his, that he's argued for with airtight clarity, these are the rights that he freely and gladly surrenders. So look with me in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 15. He says, but I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So again, the point of this passage, even though it is to articulate clearly the nature of this kind of right for provision for the man of God in the life of the church, that's not the thrust of why he's making this case. He says, I I didn't do this so that I could secure such provision. He says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. This gets interesting. He says in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. There it is again, that that reference to preaching the gospel free of charge. In verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win win more of them. This is a familiar passage for probably many of you that we're getting into here. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Let's just stop right there for a moment. We'll work our way all the way through the end of the chapter as we move forward in the weeks ahead. But just for a moment, let's begin to introduce this new section. Obviously, you have Paul's rights obtained and defended. This is the section about Paul's rights surrendered. But but notice this passion and depth of Paul's conviction about surrendering this right. We've already seen in verse 12, prior to this, we've seen that despite this airtight defense of this right to remuneration for his work among the Corinthians, he surrendered that right for a higher purpose. Verse 12, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle, he says, in the way of the gospel of Christ. There's something about him insisting upon this right that he says would put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. This term, it's, it's just simply it's something that would hold back progress. It's a hindrance. In fact, in sort of military terms, it would be 
you know, the, a, 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 a military regiment who would basically break up the roadway to make it difficult to put hindrances in front of the opposing enemy to make their way to them. So they would create barriers and obstacles, and they'd break up the roadway. That's kind of the idea here of this term for obstacle. It's literally putting something in the way of progress. So the Apostle Paul, for some reason, believes that if he were to insist on this right of being compensated for his ministry among them, that it would present an obstacle to the gospel. In fact, when you get to verse 15, he restates this refusal to exercise this right and, and this, this right that's clearly been articulated. But notice this passion and depth of conviction that he's carrying concerning this matter. He says, I'd rather die than receive compensation, than exercise this right. Give up my ground for boasting, he says. He's like, make no mistake. I'm making this argument not because I want to get something from you. That's not why I'm making the case for having this right. In fact, I'd rather die than giving up my ground for boasting, he says. It's as though there's some kind of strategic advantage that he feels compelled to hold on to here. It's more important than him getting this right exercise to be remunerated for his work in the ministry. So this kind of begs the question for us. Why why such strong conviction? What was it? I mean, if the right is so inarguable, I mean, if if he can level a case that's so convincing and so overwhelming, and yet be so determined to not lay hold of that right, what is it that he is concerned about in terms of this obstacle for the gospel? Why, why such strong conviction and, passage, uh, and passion about it? And, and furthermore, why was this the Apostle Paul's general pattern of ministry? This is not something that he just did in Corinth. This is sort of a pattern for him. We saw this already in Acts chapter 18, where he started off as a tent maker with Priscilla and Aquila, but even in 1 Thessalonians. One of the Macedonian churches, by the way, who after he was there sent him a gift. They followed the ministry that he had among them and sent them a gift to Corinth. But in 1 Thessalonians, he says to them in chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, he says, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This is his practice. So it it raises the question for us, how do we understand? What, What is this about? The Apostle Paul makes this airtight case for this right and then surrenders this right, but he doesn't just surrender the right because he knows that it's the right thing to do. Somehow there's a strategic advantage that he's holding on to. There's something that he's trying to avoid, this hindrance of the gospel. Well, this is where I think that a particular commentary, the Pillar of New Testament commentary, provides maybe some help here for us to understand what's really going on. Let me just read a section from it, and then we'll have to wrap up. We're running out of time. Recent studies of friendship 
and its relationship to the patronage system in ancient Roman society have helped us understand a number of dynamics in early Christian worship and ministry that are rather foreign to our ways of doing things today. In Paul's context, the giving and receiving of gifts was part of a much larger system in which friendships and obligations were established, managed, and maintained. Such friendships and obligations entailed commitments of loyalty, future favors, and privileged status with respect to those who were not part of the relationship. Peter Marshall explains, quote, The offer of a gift constituted an offer of friendship. While in theory it was voluntary and disinterested, it was intended to place the recipient under an obligation to repay. Acceptance was conditional. The recipient must respond with a countergift or service immediately or at some later time, and numerous and popular conventions governed the behavior of both benefactor and recipient, end quote. Through this system, people of high status, he goes on to say, use their wealth not only to cater for their social and economic needs, but to form alliances to secure power as a form of security and protection against personal and political enemies. He concludes the matter by saying this, For Paul to accept such a gift would probably have suggested to the Corinthians and others not only that they were friends, but also that they were Paul's patron and he their client. Such a perception would have had potentially disastrous results for the ministry of the gospel. So it's possible that the cultural environment there would make him receiving compensation from them. Maybe they would be quite willing to do that, but there would be strings attached based upon this cultural environment. Favors that would need to be returned. Basically being a puppet that has been purchased and strings have been attached for control and manipulation. And so it's quite possible, though it's not explicit from the text, it's quite possible that the Apostle Paul did not want to have anything like that attached to his ministry of the gospel among them. Now, we're out of time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I'm just going to stop there because I don't want to start a new point and not finish it. But we're going to move ourselves into this next section. I don't know how you, I don't know how this last section landed on you, but I'm sure you've heard, I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might win some. You want to talk about a grossly abused passage of scripture to justify all kinds of crazy and deceptive and manipulative forms of ministry and doing church and evangelism. That passage is the, you know, the, the epic example of that. So I really want to kind of expand our thinking, not just around the context. We'll look at the context and try to understand it and what the Apostle Paul is teaching. But I also want to kind of talk about some of the abuses of it that we need to be mindful of and to not get uh, sort of lured into. Well, we're out of time. Uh, thanks for the time together. I would ask you uh, before I close in prayer, please be praying for the elders. We are going on retreat uh, this afternoon and coming back on Tuesday. Um, something we do every year, spending some time together in prayer, kind of reconnecting around ministry objectives and evaluating the year past. So be praying for us uh, during this time. It's a special time, but it's also an important time. So I would ask for you to guys, uh, you guys to be, as, you, as we come to mind, be praying for us during that time. Let's pray together.